This evening's uh, talk is about equanimity. And I'd like to begin with uh, a few moments as though uh, sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gotama. So let your eyes close and settle into your seat. As we, in a sense, take a trip back in time in our mind, sitting under the Bodhi tree with the Bodhisatta, the just about to be Buddha, on that now famous night. As he was protected with the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of exploration, investigation, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and the flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering, undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gotama, sitting under the bow tree that night, with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive, receptive, very open-hearted presence. As though he were an immovable mountain, the mountain of equanimity. Here in Taos, we have what's considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one amongst the many mountains that surround the Taos Valley. This uh, sacred mountain is uh, actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north edge of this town of Taos. And this particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people. And it's also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the very good fortune of being able to look at it and to take it in in every season, any time of the day or night and any day of the year, as it's very clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, just simply sits where it is. 
The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it, all sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. The mountain remains unshakable, unwavering. The mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a lively energy, a live, lively energy, but only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, and constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached or averse to anything. We might say that it lets life live through itself, closing off to nothing and holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so, beginning our exploration of upekka, equanimity. Equanimity is a very powerful force in our practice and a powerful force in the whole of our life. And in the Buddhist teachings, it's included, as we've mentioned here, as one of the um, four divine abidings, one of the four Brahma-viharas, metta, karuna, compassion, mudita, empathetic, or I like to call it contagious joy, and um, equanimity, upekka. It's also um, one of the ten paramis, or the perfections of character that are developed along on through the way of our practice. It's also one of the two jhana factors, or deeply concentrated states, factors of a deeply concentrated state that is present in the fourth jhana. And equanimity, upekka, is also one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And those factors being mindfulness, investigation of states, effort or energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So it's a big part of all of these Buddhist teachings and practices. Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity before he attained full awakening, before he attained full enlightenment, as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree that now famous night, with an evenness and balance in his relaxed and very powerful presence. 
as though he were an immovable mountain. As he sat there with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance, seeing things very clearly and relinquishing, letting go, relinquishing every attachment to all forms of body and mind, and then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power, and the equilibrium of the mind, the heart, to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power, and the balance of heart and mind to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external formations and in the realm of feeling, the pleasant and unpleasant feeling that's associated with the arising change and passing of all internal and external phenomena. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This uh, six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states, or as the Buddha often called them, cankers, he was quite descriptive at times, um, whose cankers uh, uh, have been destroyed, destroyed just temporarily or destroyed completely, finally, and who then abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to the desirable and the undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And a quote from the Buddha regarding this. Here, uh, a bhikkhu, a yogi, a meditator, whose cankers are destroyed, is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She, he, dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness, great strength and ease of the mind, the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal uh, translation of the word upekka, the Pali word upekka, is onlooking. Equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the middle, staying in the center, watching things as they arise. On looking, it sees them fairly, it sees them without favoritism, without bias, without partiality. So 
one attribute of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of feeling, is that it's neither pleasant nor painful feeling. The function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so upekka manifests as neutrality. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or the equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a child that I really loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw or the teeter-totter, as we called it, uh, with another child. Both of us suspended in mid-air in our teeter-totter seat, perfectly balanced in mid-air for just a moment. And there was always a certain kind of happy and almost breathless uh, feeling inside me when those moments would happen. And we kept trying to make it happen. We, we liked it. The poet T.S. Eliot uh, spoke about this quite beautifully. He said, At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point. There would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This uh, still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and strength of mind, strength of heart. The Buddha used a metaphor of putting a spoonful of salt into a cup of water. And because of the very small container of a cup, the water will be extremely salty undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put a spoonful of salt into a a large body of water the size of the Rio Grande River, which is the largest river here in New Mexico, it certainly won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness, we could say, that the salt is put into. And as we all know, uh, life is really quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind, the spaciousness of heart, 
with which we can meet and look on at life's everyday experiences, as well as all the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to see and to know through our practice. To look on with balance, with equipoise, with what's sometimes called the heart of greatness, with what is called in the suttas, or sutras, sutras is Pali suttas, or sutras is Sanskrit, and sutta is the Pali word. What is called in the suttas in relationship to equanimity is to look on with specific neutrality. So, what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times the three other immeasurable or divine abidings, metta, karuna, mudita, the other six enlightenment factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, as well as the arising of various other states such as patience and faith and there's many more wholesome states, that they're all met, they're all experienced and known, looked on at evenly through the mind of equanimity. And as I already mentioned, the function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so, Upeka manifests as neutrality. There's a, a wonderful a little book of teachings from Zen Master Dogen with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi, and the book is called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the, or the Tenzo, uh, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And we, of course, can um, bring this teaching immediately close, right here, right now, in relationship to our cook uh, uh, and the food here in this retreat, our amazing Surya Tenzo. And into our life, of course, when we're back home. And this is Dogen's word. These are Dogen's words. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn will allow the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. A dish is not necessarily superior because you have prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you have made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting, selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly, with a pure mind, and without trying to evaluate their quality in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. And he goes on. 
In practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk or the mouth of a yogi is like an oven. And now the next section you have to put in the context of the time of Dogen, a Dogen. You'll understand why I said that in a minute. There was no gas, no electricity, and uh, no propane, no natural gas, propane, or electricity in those days. So, just as an oven burns sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking, without distinction, our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So a simple example in relationship to our practice. We're sitting and we find that the mind is pretty tranquil, pretty serene. And this is known. And we recognize that the focusing power of the mind, the concentration, uh, uh, is evenly and repeatedly connecting with our metta object and the metta phrases. The mind isn't listless, it's not agitated, but really it's interested and appropriately energized. And at those times, there really isn't any interest at all in, or necessity really, uh, to try to exert the mind or restrain the mind or encourage the mind in any way. In our practice, just simply and clearly recognizing and knowing without attachment and that's an important uh, aspect, without attachment, that this is what is occurring. That these factors of mind are in place for a brief or maybe for a longer period of time. This is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state of equanimity. Thus contributing to our capacity, in a much larger sense, our capacity to relate to all things, all phenomena, with equipoise and composure. During the time in the culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind when it was uh, in this mode was this. One is like the charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. Now bringing it up to date, uh, more likely in our case, the metaphor might be something like One is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. And we're able to see and to know, to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by with ease. 
this quality, this factor of mind allows the process of practice, the progress of metta, to unfold without getting caught, without getting mired all the time uh, by the habits of mind that can stop things up, such as the various habits of clinging and attachment and identification that can create a block, that create a kind of tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of the habits of the comparing mind that Winnie spoke quite a bit about last night, even the subtlety of those habits can be seen, known, and potentially let go, allowing metta, compassion, and mudita to blossom and deepen. As we practice, we begin to taste equanimity along with the arising of many other wholesome mental states. And as most of you know, until equanimity is really truly matured, we can lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago now, for the whole of the last two weeks of uh, a long retreat, three months or so retreat that I was sitting, for the last two weeks of that retreat I practiced equanimity in the way that it's practiced as a Brahma-vihara, as one of the divine abidings. Sitting silently with one equanimity phrase over and over and over and over again for two weeks directing it to myself, and then on through the same categories that are used for metta practice. And this is the phrase that I use. I am the heir, or I am the owner. This is the classical phrase. I am the heir, or I am the owner of my kama, or karma in Sanskrit, meaning I am the heir, I am the owner of all of my actions of mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. Well, by the end of those two weeks, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance and evenness and neutrality in the mind and in the heart. Uh, A day or two before the end of the retreat, Uh, the thought came up, well, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought was, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. (laughs) 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 And the next thought was, well, if this was a a Zen session or a Zen retreat, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thought, those thoughts just disappeared. Well, later on that day, I was uh, quite startled uh, in true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test of Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers, though the note actually was from all five of the teachers who were uh, teaching that retreat. And it said, 
we would like you to give the Dana talk to the yogis tomorrow. <laughs> well, at that point, and even if I had been teaching, at that point I had, was not a Dharma teacher at all. I read that note, and for a moment, equanimity that I thought was so in such good shape just flew right out the window. And my heart felt like it just stopped. And the old habit of fear flew right in the window, the window of my heart. I can't, I can't do this now, said my old habit. I've been silent for so many weeks, so deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow retreatants, all my fellow yogis and speak. It's absolutely impossible. And then the heart, the mind relaxed and saw what had just occurred. And then the thought came in, ah, ah, yes, this is my equanimity test. (laughs) And I can do it. And I want to do it. And then at that moment, a, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and the heart. Gratitude for the teachers. Gratitude for the retreat center staff. Gratitude for the teachings, for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. And what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to do. So, again, until Upeka has matured, We lose and we regain our balance and equipoise, the balance and equipoise of equanimity, over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, dislike, resentment, and the self-judgment that can manifest as guilt, disapproval, not being good enough. And it also manifests as quieting liking and pride and attachment and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, me, my experiences. Equanimity also manifests as quieting the attachment and the fear that comes up in relationship to others. When equanimity has arisen and is developing, in those moments, fear, resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval or disapproval subside. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer, really true neutrality, there's nothing for greed or aversion to stick to when they start to arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what's called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So what does this mean, worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance? 
it occurs when we don't see or see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of a concentrated mindfulness investigation rooted in the heart of kindness. But instead we're blindly seduced and blindly swept away in the happenings of life. Seemingly, seemingly equanimous with it all. This is not upekka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or based on or produced by ignorance. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. On seeing a visible object with the eye or in relationship to contact through any of the six sense doors, equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught, ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning kama or karma, who is unperceiving of danger, in relationship to attachment and aversion. Such such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was pretty amazingly and wonderfully uh, direct and straightforward and very succinct in his teaching. So, a personal story uh, illustration. When I first began living here in Taos, there are many, many uh, beautiful handcrafted things in the store windows, in the shop windows here in this town. And I, I uh, noticed them. <laughs> and at times I got quite infatuated uh, with them. What I want, I want, I want. And sometimes even the delusion that I need, I need, <laughs> I must have, you know very painful contraction of that must-have mind. So I decided um, after a while of looking and being uncomfortable with all this to make a practice out of it. So I'd practice walking down the street and looking in all the shop windows over and over again and watch my mind. Did it quite a few times over a period of time, watching the process. And eventually... Eventually, I was able to look into these window shop windows and see these beautifully handcrafted objects and have great appreciation for the beauty that I was seeing. And also a tremendous appreciation for the amazing creative uh, capacity of human beings to make these things. The Dalai Lama tells a story about himself <clears throat> being taken to uh, some shops in a particular, I think it was in in London, in a particular area of London, 
the shops that carried all kinds of tiny little mechanical parts. And this friend took him there uh, because he knew that the Dalai Lama was really interested in mechanical things, especially small things. He, he I don't know if he still does this, but he used to like to take watches apart and put them back together again. So his friend took him there thinking this would be fun for him. He'd really enjoy it. And so uh, he said at first he was looking in the windows of these shops and he was quite fascinated and very interested. And uh, and then he said all, he, he, at some point he started feeling this strong energy inside of wanting all of it, wanting everything, all that, all this stuff he was seeing. And he said, and then he realized that he didn't even know what any of it was for. <laughs> he just wanted it. <laughs> so... We need to practice <laughs> and be honest, be really honest about our experience. I'm sure that every one of us um, has experienced the pretense, we could say, of equanimity within ourselves, maybe in the midst of, of greed or in the midst of dislike or resentment, anger, fear or disappointment, the kind of glossing over the ignorance, ignoring, ignorance meaning ignoring these, these states and pretending to ourselves the pretense of equanimity. Oh, doesn't really matter, you know. It's really all just fine. I'm really totally okay. Maybe accompanied by a slightly or maybe not so slight moving away, contraction from these states. Or maybe some sense of grasping. This, of course, is not equanimity. But it's actually indifference. Indifference is the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference masquerading as upekka. And, of course, I know that every one of us have the, had the experience and know that when we're inflamed with greed or dislike or fear or resentment, it's extremely difficult or it just isn't even possible to look on at that and those moments with a true equanimity. Upeka is based on an attentive, clear, presence of mind, not on dullness or indifference. And it's absolutely not a kind of casual passing mood. And it's not produced by exertion. It's really the result, it's really the fruit of our practice, or one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the heart, training the mind, through the development and the blossoming of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, mindfulness, investigation, a balanced effort, tranquility, concentration. (coughs) A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops of the mind that we encounter in our mind, in relationship to what are uh, called in the Buddhist teachings the eight worldly winds, 
praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction and disrepute or disrespect or disregard. All of these worldly winds that come our way off and on throughout our life. True equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes harsh experiences. And it's actually able to quickly regenerate its strength from our inner resources. The resources that have been developed through our diligent practice. And again, some words from the Buddha. Develop the mind of equilibrium. You will always be getting praise and blame. But do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness, the absence of pride. There's an amazing practice that um, was, and as I've been told, maybe occasionally still practiced by the Hopi Indians. I do not recommend this practice, but we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that's one of the great strengths of equanimity. And this is from uh, the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60, all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction and then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breechcloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon, this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful, peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed that they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. That's the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection. And, and a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart, getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear and greed and aversion. And it also will possess the power of renewing itself. Only if it's deeply rooted in a growing insight into the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings 
<clears throat> that I'd like to just spend a little bit of time exploring with you this evening. That as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen into a deeper understanding <clears throat> are really the roots of equanimity. And the first of these is our growing uh, clarity and understanding how the vicissitudes, the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds, how they originate, how they come to be. And this is the understanding of karma or kama in Pali. The understanding that various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experiences of ease are the results of our kama, the results of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, (coughs) and on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We could say that we're born, we spring out of the womb of karma, karma. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we're undeniably the heirs of our karma. So just a, a, for instance, simple, obvious, really, example. Just as soon as we've spoken words, or as soon as we've performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. If you really consider it, we have totally lost control over it. And yet, in some way, it remains with us. In some way, it inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance, we could say. We could say that everything that happens and the ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings in life internally and externally. Our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind. Our motivations, and our responses are our, our, our reactions to phenomena. It's not due to our hopes, wishes for ourselves, not due to some other person, or to some outer or antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding begins to take root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so it's really the first basis of equanimity. When, in fact, with everything that happens around us and within us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we only meet our own mind, what is there to fear? The heart the mind begins to relax. And we begin to know then, in fact, that we can change our mind. That we're not trapped on the karmic wheel, so to say, running around and around like a little gerbil. 
or a little mouse. And our metta practice is a potentially powerful aspect of changing our mind. But of course we, all of us, have experienced uh, fear, uncertainty, and insecurity. It arises along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds, our good actions of body, mind, and speech. So refuge from this perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. And as we take this refuge, we really, there's really a growing confidence that begins to happen in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some sort of hardship in our current lives. And of course, our practice itself, this incredible training of the heart, this incredible training of the mind, is a very, very good deed. The best, really. And the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in and through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been important for me in understanding karma is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. (coughs) You know, we've all been told, or I certainly was at times, well, it's just too late. Sorry, it's too late. Well, it's never too late. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. And it really becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this more and more becomes a certainty in our mind, in our heart, the mind becomes more tranquil and serene. And we gain the great strength of a patient heart and the evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and the difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice, with the development and the blossoming of relative equanimity, we find then that we have the strength to endure when that's what's needed and to see really clearly when that's what's being called for. We have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over and over again begin to walk down a different street. 
the understanding of karma can imbue us with a powerful medita- uh, motivation to free ourselves from karma, from kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. As we more and more clearly see our own craving and our delusion and our habitual tendencies to create and engage in situations that really strain and sap our strength and sap our healthy resistance, there begins to arise what the Buddha called a wholesome disgust. That's what he, how he named it. A wholesome disgust. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. The fruit of the deliverance of a deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity is the escape from greed. And the Pali word for greed is tanha, and it's actually usually or more accurately translated as insatiable thirst. So the escape from insatiable thirst. So the first insight that's the basis of equanimity is a growing understanding of karma or kama. The second insight that equanimity is based on is the teaching and the understanding of Anatta in Pali, not self in English. And I just talk about this a little bit. From this perspective, there's no one, no self performing any deeds, nor do the results affect any self. The fact is, the truth is, that it's the, delu- the delusion of a separate solid self, a separate me that creates suffering and disturbs equanimity. If we, if we claim ownership, meaning this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So, for instance, if this or that aspect of our personality some particular quality of ours, if it's criticized or blamed, what do we think? We think, I'm blamed. And equanimity is shaken. When we receive approval or praise for something we've done, one thinks, I've been praised. I'm a success. And equanimity is disturbed a bit at that. If, if this or that work that we've done doesn't succeed or isn't praised in the way we want it to be, one thinks, my work has failed, or maybe I, I've, I'm a failure, I've failed. And, again, equanimity is uh, shaken up. If wealth or a loved one is lost, one might think, what's mine is gone. And equanimity is again shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken 
in the delusion of identification of me, mine, I am. As our understanding deepens and the heart opens, there's an easing of the constrictive feelings and thoughts based in self-centeredness. And again, metta practice really works on this, as you've all tasted, started to taste. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mind, which that thought itself might be quite a daunting thought. (laughs) And so, of course, we begin uh, with small things, from which it's very easy to, or relatively easy, to detach oneself. And then gradually, gradually working up to the possessions, goals, and identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. So again, some personal, very simple examples. The first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge, which is one of the practice venues at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and the first time I taught there was for two months. I was the very first visiting teacher there. And I was there long enough to really um, settle in. And uh, and yet again and again, uh, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in, it wasn't mine. And it, it came about in very small, simple, and um, sometimes kind of surprising ways. When I first got there, there was no telephone in the house. And it was difficult not to have a telephone in the house. So... I lobbied for a phone, which in moments felt like it was definitely for me. And there was quite a lot of tension and quite a lot of stress in this. But in truth, the the phone was for the many, many, many others who would be using that house over many years. Well, at one point, uh, I was told that it was okayed and that a phone would be put into the house. But when that would happen... At that point, nobody knew. It's quite unknown. So, at that point, there was a quick letting go inside my mind. I really not much thought about it at all occurred after that, and I really relaxed, and I I truly felt that it really didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was staying in the house or not, because it wasn't for me. It wasn't mine. Well, at some point during that two months also, it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room. The place hadn't been quite finished being furnished. So so Jeannie, who was the housekeeper at the time, brought the rug catalog over for us to decide together which rug to buy for the living room of this house. Well, it clearly wasn't a rug for me. And I noticed uh, it was really, uh, we were choosing a rug for everyone or anyone everyone. And I I noticed there was such a different experience in the heart with this, not this kind of subtle contraction of something of mine, for me, being for me. There was really quite an openness and quite a spaciousness, not that contraction, not that clinging in the choosing. And it was a lot more fun, actually. We had really had a good time choosing for everyone. So the small things that we think of, think are ours, and working up 
gently, slowly, to giving up, letting go, relinquishing the stickier thoughts of self. Beginning to relinquish the identification maybe with some of the qualities that we're (coughs) identified with as who we think we are. Our uh, personality, we could call it. It's the thought, and this is important, it's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am that we give up, that we let go of. Beginning with small aspects of our personality. Qualities maybe of seeming minor importance. And then very slowly, slowly through our practice, working up to letting go of identification, practicing detachment in relationship maybe to those emotions and Um, aversions that we may regard as the center of our being. Ajahn Sumedho, who's uh, the former abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a really wonderful way of practicing with this. He talks about when a particular habitual uh, tendency of his shows up, and in this case he's, he's talking about the critical mind, He says, oh, oh, there's my personality. (laughs) I thought that was just great. (laughs) Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me? Even including, of course, the positive emotions or, or the aversions and then maybe the specific gifts which we might regard and be identified with as the center of our being. We're not throwing them out, but we're relating to them differently. To whatever degree we abandon, we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of I am, to whatever degree we forsake uh, thoughts of self, equanimity will enter into our heart. When we really, truly realize anything as void of a self, in those moments then, how could it cause us any agitation due to lust or hatred or fear or grief? Consequently, the teaching and the practice of anatta is an important guide along the path to perfect equanimity and our guide along the path to liberation. Equanimity is the unshakable balance of mind and heart rooted in insight. The first understanding, the first insight that equanimity is rooted in is karma or kama, and the second being anatta. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality, it's not cold, it's not heartless, it's not dull. It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness, but out of a fullness or a completeness, we could say, of connection and understanding.
At some point in our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. And in the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong and fulfilled, when it's mature, concentration and understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other, along with an imbalance with all of the other factors that I've mentioned, the factors of enlightenment and the heart qualities of metta and compassion and appreciative joy. In the Buddha's words, just as all the streams of the world enter the ocean and all of the waters of the sky rain into it, but not an increase or decrease of the great ocean is seen, such is the nature of what he called holy equanimity. As an aid, uh, as a nutriment, you could say, for the arising and the development of equanimity, the Buddha tells us that we should listen to, approach, attend to, recollect, and go forth, as he calls it, after monks and nuns and laypersons who are accomplished in virtue, concentration, insight, and who have the knowledge and vision of liberation. He says that hearing the Dhamma from such people is helpful. And in the commentaries to the suttas, we're told that there are some particular conditions in the whole of our life that will help towards the arising and development of equanimity, developing and maintaining neutrality toward living beings, developing and maintaining neutrality towards inanimate objects. Developing and maintaining... No, I already said that one. Not spending a lot of time with possessive people. Associating with people who maintain neutrality towards beings and inanimate objects. And lastly, the commentaries say to make a resolve, actually the Buddha said this as well, to make a resolve to incline the mind, to incline the heart towards the arising, the development, the fulfillment, and the perfection of equanimity. I'd like to just uh, spend a little bit of time uh, now uh, as we come to a close with our evening talk, um, to look at equanimity in relationship to it being one of the Brahma-viharas, one of the immeasurables, as as these uh, four qualities, heart qualities are called, um, and the interrelationship of it with the other three. This quality of equanimity, the even-mindedness, the spacious, 
stillness and balance of the heart and mind. The kind of radiant calm, we could say, of equanimity. It stabilizes the effects of metta and compassion and uh, appreciative or uh, empathetic joy and also mindfulness and wisdom. It really brings uh, a stability uh, to those uh, manifestations. In terms of metta, metta love, equanimity um, gives a very even, unchanging uh, kind of firmness, and uh, it endows metta with uh, uh, the great virtue of patience. Equanimity is what really allows that to come forth. In relationship to compassion, equanimity gives compassion uh, an unwavering courage and a fearlessness which then enables us to directly face what might at times be enormous unhappiness, despair, anguish, various kinds of suffering in relationship to both physical and mental uh, experience with others, with ourselves, and also in relationship to other kinds of suffering in the world within our, and within our own experience. So there's this unwavering courage and fearlessness that equanimity provides or furnishes compassion with. In terms of the action of compassion, equanimity really is the root, we could say, of the calm heart, the calm mind, and the um, steady heart and mind that uh, brings the wisdom uh, factor into compassion. In relationship to appreciative joy or uh, empathetic joy or contagious joy, uh, it's interesting uh, uh, what equanimity does. Uh, This even-mindedness and balance uh, of mind rooted (coughs) in the wisdom of equanimity protects the heart, protects the mind from getting lost uh, in a kind of blind, giddy, very self-centered joy that Winnie spoke some about last night. So as equanimity develops, that doesn't uh, happen much anymore. Equanimity is really the ground where we find balance in the midst of the endlessly changing circumstances of life. All of the pleasure, all of the pain, all of the changes, all of the eight worldly winds. If our ordinary everyday conduct is increasingly governed by the four sublime states, the four divine abidings, the heart the mind will begin to have much less tension, resentment, irritability. And the reverberations uh, 
that happen in our daily life, uh, which very subtly, or not so subtly, make their way into our meditation practice of all of the um, states of tension and resentment and irritability, etc. As these four divine abidings develop, they are less and less happening in daily life and less and less making their way into our meditation practice. And we begin to know how to work with them more and more clearly when they do show up. And so we practice here in retreat and uh, hopefully at home in the midst of your daily life. And we practice with sincerity and we practice with diligence. And because of this, it's inevitable, it's actually inevitable that the wholesome factors of mind, the wholesome factors of heart, as well as the liberating insights, that all of this will sprout, blossom, and eventually mature within us if we keep practicing. It's our kama, our karma, we could say. So I'd like to close the talk with a, uh, a short piece uh, from uh, uh, a collection of the Buddhist teachings called the Udana, the Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. whose mind stands like a mountain, steady. It is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her, come to him? And let's sit quietly for just a moment.